Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut. I'm an ASC cinematographer, and I wanted to kind of talk to you about something. Getting started in this industry is almost impossible. And my wife, Lydia, and I, 14 years ago, created a resource called Filmmakers Academy to make it possible. We saw a lot of gatekeeping in this industry and not a lot of sharing knowledge. So we wanted to pull back the curtain, give you confidence, teach you all the necessary skills to be an amazing, successful filmmaker, and package it all on this online resource that you have at your fingertips, on set, on your phone, on your laptop, whatever it is. So we're going to give you $50. So if you go into the show notes, click the link, and hit the promo code FAPOD50, you're going to get $50 on your first year of an all-access membership. And I cannot wait for you to join our immense and immersive community at Filmmakers Academy, where we network, we share knowledge, we just bond as this huge filmmaking uh, resource to ignite your creativity and push you beyond your boundaries. I cannot wait to see you in the Academy, and let's get to the podcast. What up? It's Brendan Sweeney here with Finding the Frame. We have Natalie Kingston. We are here to talk about Blackbird, your career. How's everything going? Going great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Let's get into it because I've been super excited about this. Got the chance to watch Blackbird. It launched in July, you were saying, right? Mm -hmm. Concluded, limited series. Mm -hmm. uh, super amazing. How do you feel Thank about you. the project? I feel really proud of it. And um, yeah, it was an exciting thing to shoot and just a just an exciting project to be a part of yeah was this your first limited series that you've ever done yes my first tv project ever That's so awesome. coming from independent films and it was a big leveling up for me yeah a big jump up well so, yeah i want to roll the clocks back here because every one of our guests i love to talk about their career and how they got started was doing some research i mm -hmm. saw that you grew up in louisiana what was mm -hmm. that like and how did that influence you as an artist yeah, so <clears throat> I'm from a small town in South Louisiana called New Iberia, which is known for sugar cane and Tabasco sauce. <laughs> it's a, um, and I mean, growing up, I wasn't really exposed to filmmaking or I didn't even watch a lot of movies. My parents really didn't watch movies too much, um, but I was a really creative kid. And so I was always busy with <laughs> creating something. So whether that was like plays, stage plays with my friends or, you know, it wasn't just, nothing was ever simple. It wasn't just like playing Barbies. It was a photo shoot with these elaborate sets or, you know, it, it just, um, it, it always evolved. Um, I, I was exposed to a lot of theater. My parents and grandparents took me to the theater a lot. Um, so way more than movies. So, um yeah, I was always doing something. And around the age of like 10 or 12, my parents bought a home video camera, VHS style. And, you know, of course I get my hands on it and that just exploded my brain. I'm like, okay, so I could do these stage plays, but like I could film them and it could be a movie. So I started, you know, I would check out these books from the children's section in the library of stage plays and convert these little 
stage plays into movies and make my, beg my friends and my sister to be in them. And Do you still have those films? I have the one, like my claim to fame when I was 10. <laughs> it's an adapted stage play called Night in the Spooky Mansion. And yeah, within the past, I don't know, five, six, seven years, I digitized it and watched it. And um, yeah, I mean, like I was doing things like, you know, I, my grandmother lived across the street from what I thought was like a really spooky house. So I like shot the exterior of that house and then we didn't have access to go inside. I think it was like abandoned. So we shot all the interiors at her house and stuff like that. So I was just kind of obsessed with that magic that you could create, you know? And at that time <laughs> when you were making these films, did you know that a filmmaking career was possible? Was that something that you were like starting to ruminate on and say, oh, I could maybe be a director? What was your thought process yeah, during that I mean, period? I, 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 yeah, I guess I kind of started to think like, maybe I could do this when I grew up, but I didn't, I didn't know what that would look like or what even that was called. I probably assumed it was a director, but I knew like, okay, I, I love this thing and it's so much fun. And then as I got a little older, you know, like in high school and when it came time to go to college, that idea was still with me, the idea of just making movies somehow production. And of course, I had no idea what a cinematographer was at the time. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's that's what like kind of planted the the seed of a very vague, abstract idea, you know. And so through your youth, did you carry through high school, continuing to shoot, and then did you make the yeah. decision to go to film school? In high school, I didn't really shoot any little movies anymore, um, but I did take a photography class, and that was on film, and we had a dark room and everything, and so I learned about that and. That was fascinating. Um, and then when I graduated high school and it was time to go to college, I was I wanted to stay close to home for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And um, and um, so the college I was looking at that I had a scholarship at didn't have a film program at the time. And so the closest thing I could find was mass communications. And um, so I didn't go to traditional film school. That was kind of you know, I didn't learn a ton there about filmmaking, but it was a very broad, you know, there was like audio production and news stuff and TV production and we had a screenwriting class. So it was just kind of a taste of a, a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. um, and then even after college, I was still like, okay, what do, what do I do? Like, you know, I need to start working and making some money. And um, so I took a job in, um, retail management and I, I managed a clothing store for a few years and um just so I could survive and I hated it so just <laughs> quit one day <laughs> um and that, that was it started in Louisiana and then I moved to Texas and um worked a little while there at the store and then just like yeah one day just up and quit and moved back to Louisiana and like okay I need to figure out how to like get back to this film thing, whatever that looks like. And no one around me could really, you know, advise me or just, yeah, just give me advice about like how to get into film. I just felt so far removed <laughs> from mm -hmm. that, the industry. Um, and, and I had a friend whose dad owned a TV station and um, they were looking for salespeople. And I did not want to do that at all, but I was like, well, I need a job because I just quit my management job and um this could be like a way a foot in the door into this tv station and who knows what it could lead to well so i did it and worked in sales for a couple months and never like sold anything um but i 
sort of made it known that I wanted to work in production. I would go like sit in the back with the guys and just like watch them edit and shoot. The, it was kind of like a local a step up from a local access mm -hmm. TV station, you know, so very small scale like shows they would do in house and there were some that were done on location. So um, a job became available in production and they offered it to me because it was obvious that that's what I wanted to do. And so I got out of sales and, and went and worked in production. And shortly after that, they gave me my own show, and it was documentary style, and I got to shoot and edit and just create the whole thing, and it was kind of like finding interesting, unique people or places in the area and doing a little segment on them. And, um, that's awesome. And that, that is like really my film school, and that's where I cut my teeth. And I was shooting on like the um, JVC 110 mini DV and editing and final cut. I don't know, six And did you have time. a lot of experience with those tools or was this the moment where you're like, okay, now I finally have these tools at my fingertips. Yeah. I'm going to learn how to make this work and put it all I together. I got a little taste in college. Mm -hmm. We had um, the Canon, I think it was the XL1 um, yeah. at the time. So I shot a little bit on that in college and we learned Avid in college, but I wasn't like, I didn't feel confident, you know. Um, but every day at the TV station, I would use that equipment and so mm -hmm. I became really confident and really good at shooting um, or operating at least I didn't know how to light at the time but so yeah did that for a couple years and then actually I did a segment um, Louisiana started to get its film tax credits um, about a year two in the TV station job and so I did a segment on um, this movie that was shooting in town and I met the cinematographer and that, like, I was like, okay. That was your aha <laughs> That <moment>. was like, aha, <laughs> uh -huh, okay. And that sort of, like, the job at the TV station came to an end. They were kind of, like, downsizing. And um, and so it was, so I started to go freelance and then got my first job through um, that person as a camera assistant. Who and is the DP? The, um, forgetting, I'm honestly, like, blanking out. I can't remember <laughs> who that was. Um, and so... Then that led to another film and working as an AC, and that's where you know I just started to observe, understand like what a cinematographer mm -hmm. did and their role, and I was like, okay, I think this is something that I can I can pursue one day. So did yeah. you make the hop trying to start shooting once you knew the idea? Okay, I want to be a cinematographer. I think that's the path that I want to take. Or did mm -hmm. you start just in camera department? You said you were acing. Yeah. Did you do that for a while? I did that not for a very long time, maybe a couple years. Um, but I knew I didn't want to be a career AC. Um, and, you know, I, I wanted to be more creative and not just technical. And I, I wasn't, like, the best at acing. Mm -hmm. But, it, but it, it allowed me to learn, you know, a ton um, then there was this film production company that opened up in, um, the town in Lafayette, Louisiana that I was living in, and they did a lot of, like, low-budget horror films and, like, sci-fi original films and stuff like that, and so and I had AC'd for them before, um, but they had a job in post, um, as an assistant editor available, and I was like, let me try, let me try that, you know, have editing experience from the TV station, and I was looking for something more consistent, and acing just wasn't cons completely consistent at the time. So I took the editing job, and um, I think that lasted for like a year, year and a half, and then I realized I really don't want to work in post, 
So kind of while I was still editing, me and another editor there and some other guys started to make films on the side and I would shoot them. So that was kind of really the start of shooting on my own. And I'm like, yes, this is, I need to get back on set and I love shooting. So it was just starting to shoot short films with friends. And then once I like officially decided, okay, I'm gonna pursue being a cinematographer, I felt like I needed to learn more about lighting specifically. Um, and I couldn't afford to go to film school and I didn't want to go like back to school at the time. So uh, I found this place called Maine Media Workshops in college in Rockport, Maine, and they offer short-term um, classes. And, um, and they had this cinematography intensive that was three months. And so I did that and it was very lighting focused. And there was like a 16 millimeter film production class. and. It was just taught by like, ASC DPs and um, really talented gaffers and like all working professionals. Is that, that still in. available for people to do? Yeah, and I actually go and teach there now. Oh, um, that's awesome. So I feel like I cool. saw Brendan Ugama or someone recently do that. What you're maybe, yeah. maybe so. I saw yeah. some other DPs Alice, talking about it. That's how I know okay. Alice. She was one of my teachers. Oh, wow. Actually, Alice Brooks. Yeah. And, and that was. Um, 11, 12 years ago now. And so that place changed my life. And, and so after I got back from Maine, I was like, okay, I'm not going to AC or edit or do anything else. I'm going to focus on being a DP and shoot whatever I can. And so it was like shooting music videos and short films and then small commercials. And then that led to um, some documentaries and feature mm -hmm. documentaries. And then it was just like a slow, just grinding and grinding and grinding. Yeah. And what kept the momentum for you? Was it just networking or trying to get on as many projects as possible? Was there something mm -hmm. that you felt was really working for you as a cinematographer to get your name out there during this period? Yeah, I think, I think it's a com combination of a lot of things. And, um, yeah, networking, just um, creating with um, people who had similar sensibilities and, you know, putting only putting the stuff out there that I was really proud of and I felt that that was really expressed me and, and my voice as, as a cinematographer and, and the stuff that I want to keep doing. Right. You know, um, and then just always trying to learn from each project, you know, and how I could do better. Yeah. Which I still do. <laughs> Did you have any idols during this time when you were watching probably more films and really trying to learn about the art? Was there any like filmmakers that really inspired oh God, you yeah. and like formulated your perspective? Yeah, I remember I saw the film Beautiful when I was mm -hmm. in Maine and that, oh my God. In your Ritu shot that, right? Or was because um, that's uh, not in your Ritu. No, uh, um, Rodrigo. Yeah. Um, Prieto, Prieto yeah. shot it. Yeah. And um, yeah, and I just. Oh, it, it just really made an impact um, on me. And I, I think I saw In the Mood for Love around that time. And so just got turned on to Chris Doyle's work mm -hmm. and Storaro and Deacons and um, then a little, well, yeah, that was kind of all at the beginning. And then that, you know, so, so many. So, so did you spend a lot of time, you know, it's one thing to be shooting, but did you study a lot of like photography and other art forms? Mm -hmm. Was there anything that really like helped you garner that eye? Yes, all, all of the above. Yeah. Photography, yeah, like, and I still just devour still photography mm -hmm. and paintings. I remember an exercise that we did in um, at Main Media was to recreate, just to pick a, a Renaissance painting and recreate the lighting. And that just like 
really also blew my brain. And, um, mm-hmm. and so I started to just analyze lighting and paintings, and I still do, and I just find that's Yeah, inspiring. I find that uh, a lot of great filmmakers, the way that they study photography and shoot photography, whether even for a director, I find that it's really important to understand yeah. composition, framing, yes. especially with a photograph, where yeah. you only have one still frame. Mm-hmm. How much of a story can you tell? Mm-hmm. And anyone always asks me, like, what's the best way to learn filmmaking? I'm like, don't grab immediately, like, a film camera like grab a stills camera and start like doing street photography try to find a composition even like a fixed lens like one focal length really challenge yourself so i always try to tell people yeah photography is what will give you an eye yeah absolutely it's extremely important like i did that so when i went back and taught a couple years ago at main media that was a an assignment to the students of of doing um just creating still images and based on, I think they each picked like a certain emotion that they were trying to convey and translating that into an image mm-hmm. and just doing that in one still image. And yeah, that's awesome. I think that's this, yeah, really, really helpful. So as your career progressed, something that we were just talking about, you did a lot of documentary work and mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of my favorite cinematographers like Sean Bobbitt, Deacons, of course, they started in the documentary world and it gave them a really like specific eye when photographing. And you yourself, I know you did what's it called? Two Trains Run In yeah. with Sam Pollard. Yeah. What was your creative perspective when going into a project that was documentary focused rather than narrative? Yeah. I mean, it really forces you to um, do a lot with a little, you know, because typically you don't have as many resources, you don't have as big of a crew as you do on, you know, films, um, even independent films. And it's, you know, very small, very intimate. A lot of times you're using natural light. So it's just kind of looking at a location that you're given because sometimes you just have to shoot at someone's house because that's where they live and we have to go to them and do an interview or whatnot. And so making the best out of that, you know, and, um, and I still kind of, that's still just at fundamentally just at my core of like when I location scout and you know just really seeing a location for what it is and sort of what it wants to be and um, sitting with it and just seeing how it looks in natural light and then either trying to replicate that or just using that and just shaping it whether that's with negative fill or diffusion or whatnot so um, that has totally formed um, informed my narrative work. Absolutely. And what was it like working with Sam Pollard? I actually got to meet him back in 2013 when he was still a professor at NYU. NYU, I reached out to him and he gave me a one-on-one tour of NYU and it was absolutely like fantastic yeah and he's such like a wise man yes that's so a great way to put it yes in the way he yeah. i remember i really wanted to go to nyu and i was mm-hmm. like sam do you think it's the right idea i was living in pittsburgh in the time and he was like brendan if you're already doing it in pittsburgh why do you need to live yeah in new york and yeah. be in nyu where it's like all of these people with a lot of money yeah. can you compete yeah and i just remember that uh he was a really incredible guy, and it was awesome yeah. to see. I was like, is it the same Sam Pollard? So oh, I just yeah. wanted to see the if you one and only. Yeah. yeah. I thought, I mean, because that was, it was, I met Sam on, it was just like a one-off shoot for like one or two days. Um, a director, no, a producer named Ruben Atlas just randomly, I think he's New York-based too, he randomly mm-hmm. hit me up. He was doing a documentary on Acorn, 
and um, Sam was directing it, and they were coming to New Orleans to do a couple interviews. So he called me to shoot just those few interviews, and so that's how me and Sam hit it off. And um, yeah, we just there was a instant chemistry there. Like you said, he's such a wise, knowledgeable man. He's just a master of his craft mm-hmm. of editing and yeah. and documentary filmmaking, and he's just. The way he conducts interviews is just so effortless, and the way he just instantly connects with people um, is just um, really incredible. I learned so much working with him. So he had asked me to come and shoot um, that uh, documentary, Two Trains, coming shortly after that. Um, I really that am, am excited to watch that film. Yeah, it's it's great. It's like blues music and mm-hmm. civil rights. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So when going on these different projects, you've had the opportunity to work with Jim Cummings, another mm-hmm. really like awesome up and coming director who's done some great work so far. What do you look for when you're about to sign on to a project, especially from the director, someone that's like a DP? What should people be considering, not only when just looking at the script, but from a collaborative level? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, when you're going on interviews as a DP, I think you're also, it's not just them interviewing you, you're also interviewing them in a sense and and um really you know trying to find out if if it's a good chemistry match and will do you get along as people you know first and foremost because you're going to spend a lot of time with them do you have similar sensibilities are you drawn to similar things or or if it's kind of if it's different do they complement one another Mm -hmm. and do you inspire each other really am i inspired by this storyteller and the stories they want to tell and the themes they want to explore and is that director collaborative um and because i look for a partner who is very collaborative um but also has a really strong idea of i mean they have to of the story they're telling and how they want to tell it and i'm here to help enhance Mm -hmm. that and um yeah so those are some of the things. Yeah. No, that's really, it's really insightful because the director DP collaboration, it's so important. And I feel like you don't, you always hear, well, what is the director looking for? Mm-hmm. But I always mm-hmm. love to ask the cinematographers that come into Finding the Frame, well, what were you looking for in the director? Not just the project, but yeah. for collaboration. Because a lot of times I feel like it's a little bit harder for the DP to gauge that. But yeah. someone that's more seasoned, you can see, okay, I really like the previs that this director's put together that's similar in mind. So to be able to hear, Look for that mutual, you want to make this project amazing. Obviously, everyone yeah. wants that. Yeah. But you share, this, you share the same, like, creative tenants, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and can, uh, you know, and it's all about me as the DP adapting to their process. Because mm-hmm. obviously, they all work differently, and they all have different pre-production processes. And, you know, and, and um, can I bring something to that? And, yeah, it's, so it's my job to not force my process onto them but but help um just fit into theirs and Mm -hmm. and bring a part of me into that you know and i know you mentioned that eventually you transitioned into the new orleans market right yeah so i moved from the lafayette Mm -hmm. louisiana area to new orleans um and lived there i think for about eight years um what was the goal with that well, it, you know, Lafayette is really tiny. You know, it's a very tiny filmmaking community. And I mean, New Orleans is pretty small too, but New Orleans is, you know, I guess the, the biggest in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's an actual infrastructure there. And so, you know, it was, I could meet more people to collaborate with. And um, 
and expand and and that's what happened you know it's yeah it just that led that move just led to meeting so many people it led to my relationship with Panavision um which I still have to this day which is a very important mm -hmm. one um and then just some directors that I still work with today and uh, crew and yeah so just being there um it also just allowed me to shoot a lot of short films narrative short films um while keeping a lower cost of living you know versus living in LA um so so I really built um my career from New Orleans and um and then about two and a half years ago decided to make the move to Los Angeles it was a it was a hard hard decision because I didn't want to leave New Orleans <laughs> but um do you like living in Los Angeles yeah it's it's it has grown on me it mm -hmm. uh, it was a weird you know my husband and I made the decision in early 20 or late 2019 okay so we moved you know right as the pandemic mm -hmm. set in and <laughs> it's a wild time to move but um yeah, it's been it's been nice being closer to the heart of the industry yeah. and being around many more filmmakers and and colleagues too. That's been a big thing is just having like a, a DP community and and friends that I get together with regularly. We support one another, give advice to one another, mm -hmm. and that's really been incredible. And during those moves, I know you were started in a relatively small city, then you moved to a bigger city, which is New Orleans, and then you moved to Los Angeles. During that time, were you actively trying to look for representation to help get you on these bigger projects like Blackbird? When did that start becoming uh, a piece of the puzzle for you? Or is that something yeah. that came like <clears throat> later in the game? So I got an agent while I was still living in New Orleans, and um, I guess a couple years before, because they had found me, and a couple years before that, I, w I was sort of like fixated on getting representation and went on a couple meetings, and I just kind of wasn't ready at the time. And, mm -hmm. um, and then I was like, you know what, I'm not going to focus on that, and I'm just going to have faith that it's going to happen when it's supposed to happen, and they'll find me. And, and that's sort of, that's exactly what happened. And so, um, yeah, was able to get an agent living there. And so it just made the transition moving from New Orleans to here very seamless mm -hmm. um, because I was already, I wasn't, when I was living in New Orleans, like especially the last three or so years living there, I wasn't working there as much. It was just traveling around, you mm -hmm. know, every, everywhere else and just being based in, in New Orleans. So I was working here in L.A., a good amount and um yeah what's some what is some advice that you would give like upcoming dps who are in a similar situation of yours who are really hungry for representation one it seems like just wait it out continue to cultivate your portfolio yeah. but is there anything that you shot specifically maybe like music videos or commercials that you felt were really the substantial piece that got eyes on you do you have mm -hmm. any like tips or insight to that process because i feel like that's a very shrouded and hard code to crack it, it is. is getting yeah. representation some people are super eager and can do the whole like finesse networking thing very yeah. well yeah and then some people obviously their work speaks for themselves yeah what kind of insight would you have in additional just like making sure your work is as good as it can be yeah I guess that's the route I wanted to take is letting the work speak for itself and I'm not like an amazing networker I'm not gonna cold call people and that just makes me nervous I'm kind of <laughs> shy in that, in that way so um, yeah, like I said, I was kind of fixated on, on getting an agent and, and for a couple years, and then it just like 
it, it just that and then I realized that shouldn't be like the forefront that shouldn't be at the forefront it shouldn't be like my focus the work needs to be so I'm going to put that idea aside and trust that it's going to happen and, and it happens differently for everyone you know um, just like everyone's career unfolds in a different way but for me I just had I just couldn't focus on that and so like I was just like let me just focus on being the best that I can be only putting the work out there that I'm super proud of and the types of projects that I want to do and attract the kind of filmmakers that I want to work with and so I think it was a handful of just these passion projects, music videos. Um, I had done a pretty big commercial, pretty big for me at the time. Um, it was for Boots Number no. Seven, a cosmetics company, mm-hmm. and um, and then maybe you know put that out there. Maybe that helped, but I, I don't know if there was one particular project. But uh, and and when I say put out there, it was like Instagram, mm-hmm. and just um, you know making sure I was just always you know putting. I guess being um, consistent with posting new work mm-hmm. and um, and not just you know really focusing on quality over quantity and and that went went the same for my website as well. Right. Um, were you particular with the representation that you were trying to get when people started to knock on your door? Did you go with the first one? And I know that's probably hard to be. Some people they might only get one like offer. I just had one offer yeah. at the time, and I felt like it. Yeah, it was a good fit, and mm-hmm. and their roster was really talented cinematographers, and. Um, yeah, I felt like it was a good match. Um, right. So I wouldn't have jumped. I wouldn't have said yes if it didn't if it didn't feel right in my gut. And mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't. I didn't think their roster of cinematographers were talented, but but they right. were, and it made sense. So I was like, okay. And I met them in person and came out here, and I was like, okay, I think that's we awesome. Move forward, yeah. A similarly hard question. That I feel like a lot of our audience would love to know because people aren't always union yet. And mm-hmm. something that's difficult for DPs, and maybe you could speak to this, is when they should go local 600 mm-hmm. union. Is it going to nip them in the butt in terms of like some of the other jobs that they were taking? Could you give any yeah, insight in when like it was a really good time for you to make that switch? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I didn't join like right away because I didn't want to be, I wasn't consistently shooting union projects. And I didn't join as an AC because I knew I didn't want to be a career career AC, and I felt like that would kind of keep me stuck in doing that just to keep up my hours and stuff like that. So I joined when I kind of had to. Um, I started to shoot bigger commercials um, and a few union commercials in Louisiana that <clears throat> it's a right-to-work state, so I could shoot them. Um, and I started to, I would, I would day play every once in a while as a camera operator. So I was accumulating hours. Mm-hmm. And then I got this really big commercial um, for ESPN. And it was like a two or three week shoot. And and it was going to be union. And so I had to join to do it. But it made sense at the time because I could see, you know, I was steadily um, doing bigger commercials. So I was like, okay, it feels right to join. And then after that, I started to get more union commercials. Um, and it, yeah, so I just, I, I waited until it, it made sense. Yeah, you had and I was projects. actually doing mm-hmm. the union work, you know, or yeah. starting to, yeah. Yeah, I always feel like a lot of DPs, especially, that's such a tricky maneuver is when to do it. So essentially, once projects felt like they were stacking up enough and you had enough cards going forward to be able to pull that off, that definitely makes sense. Yeah. Now, and I'm assuming that was in New Orleans when you decided to go Union. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's awesome. So 
you're going through, you're wrapping up your time in New Orleans, you shot a couple feature films. What was it like comparative to the documentary, music videos? So you're on these projects. What was it like working with directors and like the previs going into that? More so about like camera selection, how you pick your lenses. Do you work closely with the directors? Is that something that you like to spend a lot of time on? What does that look like? <clears throat> yes, I like to work as very close to directors and communicate with them on, you know, if they're interested and they usually are on, you know, lenses and camera selection and I do tests and show them all the tests. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess pre-production was the same way as I approached even the stuff early on, like mm -hmm. the music videos and documentaries and short films. And, you know, I just, I always took pre-production very seriously and um, really um, cherish that time, one-on-one -on -one time with the director, whether that was breaking down a narrative script or you know, talking about the documentary shoot or the concept for the music video. Um, and um, yeah, and for films, it's, it's really you know, um, having that time to um, analyze the script with a director scene by scene and getting to the heart and the core of the story and the emotions that we're trying to um, turn into visuals and how do we convey that. And, um, you know, that's talking a lot about character perspective. It's talking a lot about um, themes that we're trying to explore, you know, and um, really getting in sync with that um, and letting that inform mm -hmm. every decision that's made technically down the line from lenses to camera to aspect ratio to lighting, you know, mm -hmm. everything. Um, so it's like after those conversations, then it's like I go off and, and think of like ha how to um, translate all of that in, into visuals. And I think that's the, the funnest part is like, you know, here are all these tools mm -hmm. and how, how can I use those tools to best express these themes. What would you and, say is your um, favorite part of being a cinematographer? Is it creating a composition? I know you talked about one of your not so strong skill sets was lighting, but that you spent some time focusing mm -hmm. on that. And one of my favorite things that I saw you post recently on Instagram, this is why I wanted to bring it up, was how you did, you showed like a picture of a washer and dryer and you oh. did like the gold on it to yeah. inject that in there. And yeah, I thought yeah. like that looks so beautiful. Is there something that you particularly love about being a cinematographer? I mean, I love lighting so much, mm -hmm. probably cause like back in the day I was like, okay, I don't know anything about lighting. I need to learn everything I can. And so I became obsessed and I still am very obsessed with lighting because mm -hmm. it's 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 so much I mean it's not I don't want to say it's everything but it whole it's so huge in cinematography and that's maybe what I think about first I don't know probably depends on the project but um I think just my favorite part is is the, uh, with each film, I just look at it as a unique opportunity or an opportunity to create a unique visual language, you know, that, that can only work for this particular film and, and this particular set of characters, you know. Um, and so, yeah, it's just like finding the right combination of tools, f you know, and here's your 
and narrowing that down. That's my favorite part because it's overwhelming with, when you think about all the tools that you have available, but just narrowing those tools down and those visual concepts down, whether that's like a certain compositions you want to create that express certain feelings and emotions mm -hmm. or, um, you know, certain, certain type of lighting style at times if you want to em embrace, you know, top light or silhouette, whatever it is. You know, um, just like discovering the act of discovering that with a director, and uh, is is very exciting, and, and that you know happens in pre-production and, and watching films with them or looking at art together, and and just getting you know because pre-production is like the sky's the limit, and it's calm, calmer mm -hmm. than production. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it can like be crazy too but just you know when we can like go in and lock ourselves in a room and and just have those creative discussions and daydream and um but that's just the best and then of course being on set and mm -hmm. you know um executing that is do fun. you have any aspirations to ever direct um it's definitely not the end goal but let's say if the opportunity presents itself later down the line then I might explore it, but, <laughs> but I'm just so obsessed with cinematography mm -hmm. and being a visual storyteller sure. right now that that's, that's it, you know? Well, you're doing an amazing job. Thanks. <laughs> and that brings us to Blackbird. Okay. Because it was very beautiful. I loved how moody it was and how subtle the filmmaking was, but there mm -hmm. was some really, really nice camera movement. And just so, just to kind of do a little synopsis, just so if anyone hasn't seen it, it is all about Jimmy Keene, that's right. He uh, was pushing drugs, ended up getting mm -hmm. caught, mm -hmm. was 25 to life for it, right? I think he got, um, t was it 10, Ten years okay, initially. Maybe. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought it was a lot longer. Okay, so ten years. And while he was incarcerated, he was approached by the FBI mm -hmm. to uh, speak with the killer at the time, Larry Hall, to get a confession. Mm -hmm. Very intense story. Based on a true story. Based on a true yeah, story. Which is insane, yeah. And where did that take place? In, so Jimmy Keene was living in Illinois, mm -hmm. and then he... Um, he transferred to Springfield Prison for the criminally insane where Larry Hall was in Springfield, Missouri. Well, yeah. were you aware of this story before it came to you? No, no. It was pretty low profile. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's this like documentary online that I watched when I heard about yeah. it, but yeah, it wasn't like really talked about that much. So talk about the early stages of this project when you were approached. What was the first thing that stood out to you? And at this time was creator, uh, what's his name? Dennis Lehane. Yeah, was mm -hmm. he involved in the project? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was his baby. It um, So it sort of came out of the blue for me. Um, I was kind of going on some interviews of different films and mm -hmm. lost out on consecutive ones, and so nothing was kind of happening and and then all of a sudden this this kind of fell into my lap and I had you know was sent the scripts and read all six and I'm like oh my god this is this material is fantastic it's right up my alley it's it's dark it's gritty um these characters are incredible and the writing it's Dennis Lehane you know and I was like it's never gonna happen but i you know they want to interview me so We'll see. And I interviewed with Mikkel Roskam, the director of uh, episodes one through three, and we hit it off immediately. And he liked me, and so he he went to bat for me and told Dennis and the other producers um, 
I really think she's the one. And so I met with Dennis and the other producers, and that went well. And um, an hour after that meeting, um, my agent gets a phone call saying that they're going into Apple as a um, unified front and um, going to, you know, pitch for me to shoot it or just tell them that they want me to shoot it. And um, so I was like, oh, my God, this is insane because <laughs> I just, you know, really didn't think I had a shot because, you know, like I said, I just really had done independent films leading up to this and some bigger commercials, but, like, I'd never done a TV series before and and they wanted someone, someone to shoot the whole thing. It's not like I was coming after mm-hmm. another DPU who, you know, established the look and we were going to alternate or anything like that. So it was a big opportunity, and they had to put a lot of trust in in to me, and um, and they did, and um, yeah, and it was an incredible experience, and I learned a ton. I can imagine. <laughs> and so one of the questions that I have immediately is, being the series DP, there's no other DP, right? But mm-hmm. you have different directors coming on and off. What is that mm-hmm. like? not having it consistently from episode one to six was it challenging or was it a lot easier that you thought it would be was there a certain level of like prep that you had to do to make sure that each mm-hmm. director knew how to stay consistent with what was done prior i would love insight yeah. from that yeah but it it was challenging because obviously it was my first time doing mm-hmm. that but just you know i leaned on my past experience of just being a dp and in general and having to adapt to various different directors on different projects, you know. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm used to doing that, and um, I'm an adaptable person, and yeah, it was it was tough because there wasn't a lot of prep time in between the episodes, um, but the two um, directors who came in, Jim McKay and Joe Chappelle, were very much on board with, they had watched cuts of the previous episodes and they were very much on board on on what we were already doing and what we established and mm-hmm. they really liked the visual language. So um, luckily they weren't trying to come in and, and change everything. You know, they really complimented it and, um, and respected it. So um, the transition was good, but um, yeah, it was just, I think the most challenging part was just everyone, every, each of them had a different way of working, a different process, right. and especially in prep. And then just not having enough time, a lot of time with the last two directors to really get to know them and prep with them But before. So you just take what you can get. And, um, you know, you're already in it. You know, mm-hmm. by the time Jim came on, we had shot probably almost 50 days. You know, so we were a machine at that point. And... Um, yeah, what yeah. did principle look like? When did you guys start, and what was the overall amount of time um, spent shooting? Let's see. We started prepping in March, started shooting at the end of April, and wrapped mid-October. Mm. When was yeah. that? During the pandemic? Yeah. So it was like 2021, last year. And, um, yes, yeah, so it was like a 95-day shoot. There was a hurricane <laughs> in there. So we had, like... I think it was like two weeks off in September, Hurricane Ida. Mm-hmm. We all had to evacuate to Austin. Wow. It was actually a much needed break and actually kind of served as a little prep time. And, and just everyone got to reset. I mean, because that was at like day, we were like in the last month of shooting. You know, when we came back, I think we had like three or four weeks, three or four weeks left. So it just like, it, it helped carry us to the finish line, that little rest period of 
hurricane evacuation. That's that's crazy. Yeah, was, was there crazy. any hurdles besides that with COVID or was it pretty seamless once you guys got into the rhythm of it? What were some yeah. of the hardest parts of the production? I think just shooting in a real jail. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't operational um, and closed down after Hurricane Katrina, but still a real jail location. And so that had its you know obvious restraints and um, we had to come up with a lot of workarounds for mm -hmm. lighting and just getting the camera, especially the, in the tiny spaces of, of their cells. Um, yeah, that, that was challenging. And just, you know, being in a jail setting for that long kind of takes its toll on you, I can imagine. you know, um, emotionally, mm -hmm. <laughs> psychologically. Um, yeah, and we and that was you know, the, that location is where we shot the most, um, right. and that was pretty much all the second half of of the shoot, the majority of it. Did you um, spend any time in other prisons to be able to like get the vibe to make it as authentic as possible? What was like <laughs> yeah. the research that you had to do? Yeah, good question. No, I did. So I only had like five weeks of prep at the beginning oh, to wow. pretty much prep the whole yeah show. Um, so I didn't really have time to take field trips or anything like that. And I hadn't shot much in prisons before mm -hmm. on any projects, maybe like a scene here and there, maybe. Um, but my um, research led me to um, Gordon Parks's photo essay that he did. I love Gordon Parks. I do too, but I didn't know about this particular essay in this collection um, called The Atmosphere of Crime. I literally... You knew that just bought that yeah, book. Yeah. Oh no, I I messaged you on Instagram about that. Oh. I don't know if you remember this. You might have never even seen it, but you were posting photos, and I went to Arcana Bookstore. Yeah, that's where and I got that, my copy. Yeah, like monograph book is literally it's one of the best amazing. that I have ever seen. Okay, I'm glad you know. So it. Yeah. it yeah. is so good. It is so good. I have a lot of different like photography books. I picked that up probably January of uh, this year. And I thumb through it all the time, and yeah. it's so vivid yes. and so intense. Yes. And that is photography. Sorry, like you got me all excited. I know. But that I'm is excited. Like yeah. real journalistic photography. <laughs> yes. It is so yes. good. That so that was the visual thesis. So mm -hmm. I, I was at Arcana Books, maybe like January 2021. So before I even knew what Blackbird was, and I was like getting you know, a bunch of, I spend way too much money there. So I already I had like three money. or four books. <laughs> and then as I'm checking out, I see that. I'm like, what, Gordon, I've never, you know, I know his work, but I just didn't know that. So I pick it up and I'm like, God, this is amazing. I want this too, but like, I'll get it next time. Mm -hmm. And so Blackbird comes around doing the research. And then I remembered that. And I'm like, that's, that's the ticket. And, and that just informed everything, color palette, lighting, lensing. It, it was a huge inspiration. And just so everyone knows what it is again, it's Gordon Parks. What is the title? The Atmosphere of Crime. It yeah. was an um, essay that he did in 1957 mm -hmm. in various prisons. I think some were actually in Illinois. Yeah. But just the way, you know, there, there was this interesting pastel palette I thought was a great juxtaposition, right? Um, and, and our themes in Blackbird is misogyny and um, toxic masculinity and, you know, serial killers raping, mm -hmm. murdering women. Um, so I thought just that the pastel soft color palette was just um, contrasted those ideas in a very kind of visceral, unsettling way. So then I learned from looking at that book, because if you notice a lot of the, the jails in that book were painted like light, like seafoam green, blush pink, light blue. 
And so uh, apparently wardens started to paint their, the jails in pastel colors, specifically pink, because they thought it had a calming effect on the male prisoners. So um, I was really inspired by that, and I showed the production designer, Charisse, um, the book, and, and she responded to it as well. So we painted our Springfield prison pink and green. Um, and um, there's the, the way he, Gordon Parks, through all his work, um, but just in that book just captures natural light and um, how it's still, it's natural and it's real, but it, it feels very shaped and it feels, for lack of a better word, cinematic. It's or very just, cinematic. Uh, you know, um, yeah, it's just, and it, it's just very it's striking. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it doesn't feel, um, I didn't want to light and shoot the prisons in a, in a very um, on the nose kind of way, you know, uh, or very theatrical. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I wanted it to be real, but I didn't want it to be like documentary, you know, it needed to have a, a mood, it needed to be moody and it needed to be unnerving and, it, and the light you know, I wanted to play with shadows and silhouettes, and so the light needed to be shaped a certain way. Um, so I just felt like that that essay just really um, did all of that, and it inspired me so much. It's weird yeah. when looking at that book with how disturbing some of the imagery yeah. is. You don't want to yeah. look away, though. Yeah. It's the way yeah. that he frames it and the way where, like, he shrouds some of the more, like, violent photos but it keeps you in the book from like the time you open it to the time you close, which yeah. there's some other photograph books where I like, I only like a few photos, but every single one serves a purpose in that. So that's really incredible that you use that. And to speak a little bit more about aesthetic, let's talk about the tools that you use to shoot Blackbird. What was the camera lenses and how did you end up and why did you end up with those tools? Yeah, um, so I shot on the Alexa Mini LF with Panavision H series lenses. I thought I'd use the H series um, a bunch on commercials. So I was familiar with them, um, and I thought they would be the perfect fit because they kind of naturally have this pastelish quality to them, and it, and they're soft, have rich skin tones. They were very much the atmosphere of crime lenses, <laughs> um, and I tested a bunch of other Panavision lenses and. And I knew the H's were going to be the winner, and they were. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I went with those. And Is there a reason why you went for a large format? Yeah, because so I wanted to, Dennis wanted to create and maintain a very uncomfortable, unsettling tone because, you know, of what's going on with these two prisoners um, who are just sitting across from one another for sometimes, you know, 10 dialogue pages at a time and getting into some weird uncomfortable conversations and Jimmy Keen's just having to sit there and listen and pretend like he's interested and pretend like he likes this person um so it's very character driven it's a very much us living inside their conversations and not being able to escape um because that's what the Jimmy Keen was going through mm-hmm. um so with large format I think that that allowed me to create sort of like landscapes with with people's the actors faces um and i feel like it just helped us really um transport the audience like 
inside their conversations and, mm -hmm. and immerse them in that space. And it also helped with being in the small location, you know, the small cells and the small jail spaces um, by having a wider field of view. Um, so that's those awesome. Are the reasons, yeah. And uh, did you use any like specialty glass or anything to shoot in the tighter spaces? Nope. No, the the H series lenses are tiny. Okay. And um, yeah, so no no specialty lenses. And you said you've had a relationship with Pan Panavision for quite some time. Is that your mm -hmm. rental house to go to for everything? Yeah. 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 Panavision's right. amazing. Yeah. They're right down the yeah. road from us. We yeah. We love uh, yeah. stopping by. So shout out to Panavision. Yeah. Uh, something I would love to talk about is rules of engagement. I don't know if you're a DP that likes to formulate like composition per character and try to stick to that throughout the whole series mm -hmm. or try to figure out why you know the motivation for all of these shots i know most eps they like do that but going into a project do you create any form of a bible with the director is that something that you do yes yeah. definitely um but it's a fine line of getting too rigid with mm -hmm. rules i think rules and are great because they give you they define your sandbox to play within. Um, but sometimes it's okay to step out of that. And and I think it's important to recognize those times where maybe you need to, to step out of your roles and, mm -hmm. and break them, you know? Um, and I feel like early on, maybe I was like very, I could be very rigid and I learned from that of like, you know, not um, having to always follow the rules, but maintaining consistency. But yeah, just knowing when to do something different. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think I, I, I like, you know, everything definitely has to have motivation. Um, and there, there's always like a few focal lengths that I end up going back to for every project. I'll, there's like two or three, and that's kind of like, you know, mm -hmm. like Blackbird is like 35, 40, 50. That's pretty much what we shot. <laughs> The whole series on one of my favorite know. shots that you pulled off was of jimmy keen when he's walking through the prison and it's like top down i believe oh, yeah yeah, yeah. would talk about that shot how you pulled that off and just yeah. like the lighting behind it the motivation because it stands out in the series is one of the really cool uh just like camera movement that mm -hmm. you do that shot we had i think it was a ronin on a dolly that was armed out over mm -hmm. the balcony of the um, the second floor of that cell block, and and we were on track, and yeah, it was just 90 degrees tilted down, and just pushed um, pushed the dolly until the end. It was following Larry Hall and the guard, going to escorting him back to his cell, and so it was just tracking above him, and then I think we turned 90 degrees, mm -hmm. and, and the camera flipped. Um, as he enters his cell. Um, so it was actually kind of simple. And then lighting, um, I think I just had just a select few of the overhead fluorescents on, and that's it. Yeah, you were saying that it was rather hard to shoot in the prison. And what were some of the obstacles besides, like, space? How did you pull it off? Did you try to do, like, integrated lighting, use more practicals? Yeah. What were some of the tricks that you employed? Yeah, so I <clears throat> I knew I wanted to mix a lot of lighting, a lot of co different color temperatures, and that was inspired by Atmosphere of Crime. Mm -hmm. um, so tungsten, daylight, fluorescent. And, you know, that felt very institutional and gritty. And I, I love how when colors just contain and meld into one another um 
So one of the hardest things to deal with in that prison was the existing overhead fluorescent fixtures. So we changed them out at the beginning so they were all cool white, so they were consistent um, regular fluorescent mm -hmm. tubes. Um, but we didn't have individual control. I mean, it's a jets. We're not on a stage, so I couldn't turn like these five off and keep these two on and slow these two down. You know, there wasn't any dimming or you know, any of that. So that um, was very hard. So the workaround was the grips building cutouts of black and diffusion and ND gels that were the exact size of those housings. And those were attached with um, industrial magnets. So every time, you know, it's, it still took time, like every time we wanted to turn off, because the, the way the lights were circuited, we couldn't just, you know, it was either all on or all off. So they would go around and black out, you know, however many I wanted off, and, mm -hmm. or gelling, you know, however many needed to be slowed down or whatever. So that, that was quite um, <laughs> just a process to do every time, you know, because that, those fluorescents really set the, the ambience mm -hmm. in the space. Um, and then, you know, the rest of the lighting, like during the day um, was, and we were on the second floor, so we had to have condors, um, but we had M90s and Airy Maxes outside of, uh, the windows of the hero cells and some of the other um, uh, cells next door. Um, so they each had a strip of a window. It was like maybe this wide, a few inches wide by like four feet long. Um, so we pushed HMIs through there and then they each had a practical tungsten light um, in their cells. And then from there I would just augment with sky panels or Titan tubes, mm -hmm. a lot of negative fill. Do you have any um, light fixtures that you always have on like every production? Do you have like a certain package that you always want to make sure? Um, usually I'll have, you know, with HMIs, it's like the um, Harry Maxes and mm -hmm. the, the M series lights. And yeah, I use tubes quite a bit, like the Titan Astera tubes. Yeah. Um, we use those little, oh, I always forget the name of, um, like these little like puck looking lights. There's a name for them. Um, and I forget what company makes them. Is it circular? Uh, maybe aperture. It's kind of like a dome. I the, the aperture, um, like MC lights, those ones. I know what you're talking about. It's yeah. not those, but it's kind of the idea of that. I, what is it? Pixel brick. No, it was something along those <laughs> lines. I always, always forget the name. But we used, that was like a workhorse inside mm -hmm. the cells because it was, you know, we'd put diffusion They're over magnetic, it I'm assuming, too. They might, yeah, I think mm -hmm. so. And then that was just very easy to, like, get a little eye light or just even as a key light sometimes, mm -hmm. like at night, um, that, that worked for that. Um, always like to, what else do I have? Um, I use sky panels quite a bit. Light mats sometimes. Um, I love tungsten as well. I like to always carry tungsten. Mm -hmm. Lico's are great, both um, tungsten and Joe Lico's. I love using those as well. Yeah, so a little bit of everything. Yeah. Like to be prepared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <maybe it's> <laughs> Yeah. So for a series like this, you know, this is arguably your biggest project yet, and it's only yeah. going to get bigger from here. As a DP who's still growing up, you know, 
in the game and going to be working with bigger talent. What was it like working with Taryn Edgerton mm -hmm. and Paul Walter Hauser? And as a DP to just help them with their performances and keep them into the pocket, is there anything that yeah. you like to do specifically? Yeah, I mean, just really, they were both incredible. And it was just so fantastic to watch them work and um, really inspiring. Um, and they were just super game to just, I mean, they're so respectful of the visual side of things and were very much a part of um, helping, um, you know, w when they could of, mm -hmm. you know, if they, they're very open to like, okay, you need me to like, look slightly here when I when I land on this end mark and like whatever you need you know and um, that was amazing and um, what was the question <laughs> was just, do you have any like tips for oh, people yeah, that I are think, yeah sorry just like giving giving actors their space mm -hmm. you know and and respecting their space and and not being intrusive I don't like to you know I'm not very like pretty quiet person on set and so I like to just be discreet and talk quietly to my crew and I, I don't you know like when crew is very loud or anything and and being also like when crew is on their phones like I think that really affects actors because they can see just you know someone just head down disinterested on their phone at the corner of their eye and I think that's quite a disrespectful mm -hmm. thing um so yeah, just really respecting their processes and, and their space and, and giving them the, the, the room and to be able to do what they do. Yeah, that makes you know? sense. You know, you want actors to feel, they are giving a performance even though the performance is meant to be captured and presented later, but yeah. some of them, they want to feel like their performance matters in the moment too. Yeah, exactly. And that's something to consider for a crew that even if you are in the periphery, if you're not like actively doing something, imagine what it's like being an actor wanting to know all of the work especially that they're doing just the crew that it's worth mm -hmm. something you know, you're spending mm -hmm. all of this time to light i want to make sure that my performance is worth it and exactly. that it carries through to the final product exactly. so that definitely makes sense and i've never thought about that psychologically even just a little light shining off to the corner you yeah. might not think it matters much but it definitely could yeah and it's like put yourself in their shoes mm -hmm. you're going to a very uh, at times just difficult place emotionally and you have to keep your shooting out of order. Mm -hmm. You know, it's all this is going around on around you and you have to just be in this moment and be this character and and someone's just scrolling on Instagram next to you. Yeah. You know, that would just take you right out, out of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So for this project, uh, what were some of your biggest learning moments? Things mm -hmm. that because I know you said you learned a lot. This is your first limited series. What did you take away that you're going to carry on to your next project? Mm -hmm. Just so I guess the the sh the size of this project, you know, was the biggest thing I had done. So there's just much more crew um, and mm -hmm. people to communicate with, and that and 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 I'm like to think of myself as a good communicator, but I guess I just wasn't mentally prepared for all of the departments that you have to communicate with and how that's just so important and even to over communicate you know every single thing with with all the appropriate departments and then just if you don't know something like it's okay to ask mm -hmm. you know um and yeah that's something that i'll definitely carry with me is just like no going into something making sure um 
yeah, I communicate with everyone as far in advance as possible. And for yeah. communication, do you employ like lighting diagrams? What do you use yeah. as a communication tool? Yeah, um, yeah. Sometimes it, it was impossible to diagram like everything, everything for right. this, but um, yeah, if it's something that's complicated or specific, um, lighting diagrams or you know still images or camera plots, um, you know anything that can help communicate and illustrate, you know the what I'm trying to get across. Absolutely. Yeah. Communication is extremely important, especially yeah. for a cinematographer. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you're pretty much like binding everything together with the yeah. camera because that's the one thing that makes a movie a movie. Yeah. You know, so it definitely, I understand how important that is. And for like DPs coming up that are in you, where, you know, they look at you, it's possible. You grew up in Louisiana, yeah. a place that doesn't have like a very, an overly active film market in comparison yeah. to Los Angeles. You got yourself to where you are. You shot yourself a limited TV series. What is the one piece of advice that you would give someone looking at yourself saying that they want to get to where you are? Um, have patience. Cause it, you know, nothing, nothing really happens overnight, you know? Um, yes, everyone's journey is different. Um, but this, this is a long game and I have to constantly remind myself mm -hmm. of that, of just like having patience and it, you know, I mean, it took me, I'd been shooting, I don't know, um, 13, give or take year, been in the industry almost 15 years before I shot Blackbird, you know, so it's, it, it takes a while. Um, but just have faith that it, it will happen if you're, um, it's because it's not just talent. I mean, that's a part of it, but it's, it's, you know, the dedication to the craft. Um, the, what you do in your off time, you know, is so important of, learning, you know, always learning, researching things, being inspired, finding new artists to be inspired by and going to the art bookstores and stuff like that and filling up your well as an artist is so you're not just doing the same things over and over. That's so important. And um, yeah, just it, it totally is possible if you put your mind to it, if you're a nice person, mm -hmm. um, if you treat, treat people well have respect for your crew, the people you hire and the people that you work for. And I think those are some of the main ingredients for a successful career. That's amazing yeah. insight. And do you have any tips because cinematography is such a demanding career? How do you stay on top of just like outside of being a creative, your personal life, wellness and all of that? Do you have any yeah. insight that you could give? Yeah, because that's it's important to be... <laughs> um, to also be just a person too and not, you know, because um, you can definitely run the risk of just being, it's easy to get obsessed with filmmaking and, and I do it you know, and I have done it. And so it's just constantly checking in with yourself um, to try to maintain somewhat of a balance. And I know it's hard when you are working, but in that off time, but one thing that has really changed my life and helped me is meditation. I started doing that, um, I don't know, maybe seven years ago, mm -hmm. give or take. And guided? I started with guided, and then I recently, I guess about two years ago, um, started doing TM, Transcendental Meditation, mm -hmm. um, which was totally transformative. 
Um, <laughs> but I- any form of meditation mm-hmm. that works for you, you know. Um, and that just reminds me of, of just, you know, to be present. It brings me back to um, just the now and, mm-hmm. and just being a person on this earth and, and, and reminds me that um, filmmaking and cinematography is just one small portion of life. And um, that's really carried me through mm-hmm. and also helps me on set to be centered and calm and open-minded. So I highly recommend just some form of that, you know. Um, yeah, that's amazing insight. Yeah. Meditation is great, obviously working out, just keeping yeah, your body too. active. Yeah. Yeah. Do you operate a lot? Yes. Yeah. I didn't on Blackbird because, mm-hmm. you know, it's a multi-camera TV sure. show. But, um, yeah, I usually do operate. So, yeah, being, you know, working out, eating healthy, just taking taking care of your body from the inside out. Absolutely. Huge, yeah. Well, here's the fun question and the Uh-oh. final one. What are some of your favorite TV shows and movies you've been watching recently? Is there anything okay. that you really would love to recommend? Um, let's see. Recently, I watched The Offer pretty recently. Which one is that? Um, oh, so that's the Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah. About Steve is obsessed with this camera guy over here. It's he really fantastic. liked the show. It's amazing. It's, yeah. it's so well shot. It's, mm-hmm. it's so well done. Miles Teller is fantastic. I have to check it out. It's, you should. As a filmmaker, I found it quite inspiring. And, what is it um, on? What is it on? It's Paramount. Paramount. Yeah. Um, what about movies? It's movies. movie season. Yeah, yeah. What's the last movie I watched? Oh, don't say that. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, well, I've, I've been working a lot lately, so um, I watched, oh, my God, um, Oh, Everyone, this is no. Natalie Kingston. I know. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I can't remember the last one. I recently watched um, An American Friend. Um, sorry, I just hit the table. You got me so excited. That is one of the best movies yeah. ever made. Top yeah. five. Wim Anytime. Yeah. He is so good. And the DP. Bobby Mueller. Yeah. Mm-hmm. R.I.P. Passed mm-hmm. away. What, in the last, like, year or two? few years something yeah. like that yeah that is one of the most beautiful films the color palette yeah. talk about gordon parks that is like yeah. a really great yeah. representation yeah. of that book into a movie and yes thank you that movie is so yeah. good yeah it's so good it's so uh, yeah, yeah everything about it yeah it looks stunning i mean robbie mueller yeah and dennis yeah. hopper yeah. So yeah. good. Yeah, it's so good. I love that era. Dennis yeah. Hopper, if you don't know about his photography, which I'm assuming you do, yes. it is so good. Yes. So anybody, yes. check yeah. out The American Friend. Highly recommend it. It's in the Criterion Collection. One of the best movies ever made. Uh, yeah, tremendous. Yeah. yeah. Well, oh, I know what I'm, what I'm watching now is um, I just started the Light and Magic series about the start of ILM and oh, yeah. all those guys. Mm-hmm. I think Steve talked about that as well. <laughs> <laughs> Steve watches a lot of shows. I get everything from him. Yeah. But, uh, well, Natalie, this has yeah. been an awesome conversation. Yeah. If you haven't seen it yet, Blackbird, it is on Apple TV+. Plus. Mm-hmm. She was the series DP, and it was amazing getting insight about that. And we are super excited for what's to come next, because you will be back on Finding the Frame talking about your next project. Yeah, happy to So be. Yeah. once that's coming, please hit us up. And for those that don't know about Filmmakers Academy or are interested in what we're doing, we have a promo code for y'all. It is FTF15 for your first 15% off on a monthly membership. We would love for you to check us out. And also, we'll be back with more Finding the Frames. Natalie, 
Kelly, this has been amazing. We will definitely be talking more about Gordon Parks and the amazing movies. So thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Hi, I'm Shane Hurlbut, and I'm an ASC cinematographer. And my wife and I have created this incredible resource called the Filmmakers Academy. And we'd love for you to download and rate our app. If you're a filmmaker, do yourself a favor and download the Filmmakers Academy app today. It's available wherever you get your apps. Most notably, the App Store, Google Play, Amazon App Store, and the Roku Channel Store. The app includes everything on the platform for all access members and from content to community and coaching opportunities, everything you need to master your craft. So download the app. And this is the most important part. Be sure to rate it. Rating us really helps us spread the word and enhance our rankings in this dedicated app store. So if you love what we're doing, this is a way to show it. Together, let's take your career as a filmmaker to the next level.